11 of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams podcast. I'm your host, author and entrepreneur, Emily White. Huge thanks to the New York City Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment for making this season happen. This live podcast taping is a part of New York Music Month, the official celebration of New York City's vibrant and dynamic music ecosystem. I also want to thank Downtown for their support of this episode. Downtown's mission is to shift the power center of the music industry into the hands of those who create and those who support that creation by giving them the finest and most comprehensive set of tools and services. Downtown is committed to building a more equitable music business. They believe in partnership, advocacy, and helping musicians to develop sustainable careers so they don't require their clients to give up any of their copyrights. Okay, let's do this. So just to recap where we've been, you've gotten your art together, you've set up your text list via community.com and overall marketing channels before you began recording, so that's in place, plus you've launched your pre-order or your Patreon to monetize your music before it's even out. We've covered everything you need to do legally around your music, in particular, ensuring everyone in the studio signs a work-for-hire agreement. And you have a clear process to discuss and confirm songwriting splits. You've recorded your music and registered your songwriting with a performing rights organization and song trust or your publishing administrator. We've dug in on the proper ways to distribute your music to receive the maximum amount of income while exploring where music distribution is headed via Web3. We also learned from Janae Brown, known as the Beyonce of marketing, on how to market with or without a budget, and discussed a lot with legendary concert promoter Peter Shapiro. We learned a ton about merch with fourth wall COO Eli Valentine. And in the previous episode, we reviewed all revenue streams owed to you if you write, record, slash release, and play live in addition to bonus revenue streams, if you want to do even more. And we, we had that conversation with artist Madison Rose. But how do you know when it's time to wrap your release and start the creative process all over again? To do so, I'd like to share some info on today's esteemed guest, Lucas Silvera of The Clicks. Lucas rose to fame in 2007 by becoming the first out transgender man to be signed to a major label inking his band's record deal with Warner Music slash Tommy Boy's Silver Label. Lucas has toured worldwide with artists including Cyndi Lauper, the B-52s, Debbie Harry, Tegan and Sarah, The Cult, and the New York Dolls, to name a few. His latest venture was as TV show co-host for, Vice, for a Vice production docuseries called Shine True in Canada, which, is, uh, which was on Out TV and in the U.S. on Fuse. As a public speaker and mental health awareness advocate. Oh, excuse me. As a multidisciplinary artist, Lucas divides his time as singer, songwriter, performer, freelance writer, public speaker, and mental health awareness advocate. He recently released his first studio album in nine years, The Goddamn Flowers, to an overwhelmingly positive response from fans and industry peers alike. Lucas is writing a photo memoir, an illustrated teen novel loosely based on his childhood gender identity and connection with his mother, and touring to promote his latest album. So thanks for bearing with me. Welcome, Lucas. Thank you very much. Yeah. How are you mm-hmm. doing? I'm doing well. Things in Toronto are getting cool now, which I love because I am not a fan of heat. So bring on the fall. Well, you're in the right place. That's for yeah. sure. <laughs> so let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? I uh, was born in Toronto and lived here from the ages of zero till I was four. And then when I was four, I lived, I moved to uh, the Azores, which is like a group of nine islands off the west coast of Portugal, so Portuguese islands. And I lived there till I was 10. Then I moved back to Canada again. And I lived in a suburb of Toronto uh, until I was about 24. And I've been living in Toronto ever since. So I've been in Toronto for now probably about 25 years now. I love it. What brought your family to the Azores and what was your time like living there? Uh, My parents were both uh, from there, born there, and they immigrated to Canada in the late 50s, early 60s. A lot of folks did that. They sort of like came to the country to sort of like make money to send back to their poor families. And uh, my dad just reached a point where he was just like, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to take my family back to the land 
My mom didn't want to go, but he took us. And so the experience there was very strange because I went from having, you know, a life in a very developed uh, country to basically going to a place where there was only like, uh, you know, well water, there was no running water in houses, there was electricity from like 6pm to 12pm. And it ran on a diesel generator that like a guy hand cranked. We had a black and white TV with like one channel. And we were the first people in our village to actually have a house with a bathroom in it. So that explains to you sort of like the childhood I had from four to 10. I you know, when I go back, I see all the beauty, but as a child, it actually was not a very positive uh, environment because it was a very, like, rigidly Catholic, Roman Catholic sort of mindset. So I lived a lot of my childhood in a lot of fear of reprisal and also being, you know, transgender and all that. Uh, it was difficult. Uh, it would have been difficult to be in Canada with that. And uh, But the word, you know, like, nobody knew what being a boy uh, me feeling like a boy meant. So I had like a very bizarre and I would say like traumatizing childhood. Um, so, you know, with a bunch of other factors that went into it. But the amazing thing is that while I was there, I also discovered my absolute love for music. It became my greatest escape, my greatest joy, the only place that I could truly ground myself. And the connection that I had with uh, sort of like the folks in my village and with my dad, because my dad was a singer and a trumpet player. And so music was very nurtured in me. So I could very honestly say that despite all the trauma and that, it also was what brought me fundamentally to a place of knowledge that I just, music was the center of who I was as a human being. Wow. Um, yeah. Very powerful. Do you speak Portuguese? Absolutely. Super fluent. Awesome. I love it. <laughs> So you mentioned being transgender. When did you know you were a boy? Uh, my first memory is when I was four, and it was actually just as I arrived uh, on the island, which is called Pico. And uh, the first house that we lived in didn't have running water or any of that. My dad was building the house up the hill. And my mom gave me and my brother a bath. So I would have been four and he would have been like six or something like that because together. So to like, because she had to boil water and put it in this big tub or whatever. So uh, it was the first time that I like saw his body. And I'm, uh, up until then, I thought we had the same body because I was like, I'm a boy like my brother. And when I saw it, I was like, yo, what the hell? I'm like, how come I don't have one of those? And my mom, I remember her laughing and being like, you don't have one because you're a girl, silly. And uh, we lived above a store at the time and I like started crying and I demanded that she like go down to the store and buy me one, <laughs> which I always chuckle at, you know, even though at the time it was like a very painful like realization for me, but also, you know, again, I always go back to the music piece because I think the fact that my gender identity made me very, very like emotionally aware and internally aware. And I think because of that, I started to really pay attention to all of the stuff that was going on inside of me instead of outside of me. And again, that like was the place that built up who I was as a musician. So it was, everything is sort of like intertwined into all of the sort of like early self-awareness. But uh, one of my aunts actually told me she remembers me saying I was a boy as early as the age of two. That I don't have a memory of. But that kind of blows my mind that a kid could have that sort of kind of like self-awareness. So, yeah. Yeah. I really, I mean, not to digress on like a totally different topic, but like, I really agree with what you said with regard to like being two. When I was mm -hmm. a little kid, I would tell like my grandmother, um, I want to be an author. No, I'm going to be an author. And I would mm. copy other books and like, She's brought that up since I, even like when I was growing up, she would bring that up. And it's like, you know, it's like when, when you're a kid, it's like every, I don't know. I don't know if every kid, but a lot of kids or I did said they want to be a marine biologist because you want to play with dolphins. Right. Or you want to yeah. be an astronaut because you want to go to space. It's like, it's not like I was like, I love writing, you know, <laughs> never set yeah. out to be an author. Um, I just caught myself explaining a lot of this stuff over and over. So I don't know. I mean, not to get too off track, but I almost swear it's like present is, or, you know, future is past is present is, is one thing. Cause that's really powerful as well. Yeah. I agree with you. I think the kids don't get enough, um, you know, support on their self-awareness. I think what 
people do as adults is they try to train them into what they think they should be instead of listening to them. And I think if we just let our kids just sort of like follow their natural instincts that it'll and, and accept them, not like fight them on it, then you'll see like the fruition of knowing who they are at the center core of who they are. I think it's like a very, very natural thing. So to say that, you know, that was sort of like where you felt you were, look, you get older and that's where you feel your center is. Right. I think that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so when did you come out? Did you come out at age four or was that later? In life? <laughs> well, I came, I came out throughout my life. Um, I think in ways that I think people just didn't understand where I would always tell people I'm a boy, I'm a boy. I don't understand why everybody's treating me like this, but like I like you know what I was just talking about. I would get scolded into being like, "You're not. You're a girl. Stop this." Um, I was looked at as being a tomboy, which I, you know, in the general meaning of the world, I guess I was because I was assigned female at birth. But I would fight to like tooth and nail to like get my hair cut short to dress a certain way. Um, my mom's greatest like memory of like my resistance was always with fashion was always about presentation. And finally she just sort of like gave in and she was like, do whatever you want. Like I'm done. So when you look at pictures of me, when I was a kid, I just looked like a little boy walking around and I got lucky because even though my parents did have some resistance, there was also this sort of like bizarre acceptance because my mom and dad have been the greatest blessing to me as a trans person. They've always been accepting of who I was. Even at first, they were kind of like, I don't understand this or whatever. But the love, excuse me, was always there. And so because of that, there was a certain freedom for me to present as who I was. But I spent most of my life being horrified by religion and and hearing this like voice of like, you're going to go to hell kind of thing. So for the longest time, I just thought I might be mentally ill. And, uh, that, and you know, that sort of like through society was something that was very much supported that trans people were mentally ill. I mean, we were even in the DSM as one point as being like a mental disorder, um, which only very recently came out. And now people are trying to put it back in as I'm sure somebody who's involved with, you know, politics and what's going on in the U S the same thing is happening here now, uh, all this anti-trans sentiment, um, but yeah, so I got really, really lucky. But my official coming out um, as a trans person was when I was 32. I had come out as a lesbian when I was 17 because I figured, well, I guess this is what I am. I'm attracted to women. So I sort of like went towards my sexuality. I figured uh, the presentation of a lot of lesbians is very butch. So I can I can sort of like present myself in that capacity. But it never felt like me. I just felt like I was like, getting as close as possible to something that was possible because Jesus Christ, how could I be a boy? That's not possible. That's not how I was born. It was the belief that I had because there was, you know, no knowledge of trans people at the time. So that's what I had. But yeah, when I was 32, I finally met a couple of people that were trans and I was like, Oh man, I think this is me. Even though I knew I just didn't have that word. And I finally came out. And then the strangest thing happened because at that point I was like, well, I guess I'm going to come out. Uh, this part of my life will be good, but I'll never be like a professional musician. I'm never going to have any success because who's like, I was already having so much trouble as a female, as a lesbian, even getting any kind of legitimacy within the, you know, the music industry, which so many women face still to this day, which is so ridiculous. Um, but then I thought being trans, that's just like impossible. So the weirdest thing happened is I recorded an album anyway with my band, The Clicks. We had one album that I'd written and produced the year before. I was like, well, I got a grant. Let's put out another record and, you know, I'll make my way through the queer music scene in Canada. And that'll, I guess that'll have to be enough. And two months later, the band gets picked up and we get signed. And I was like, what? I don't get it. (laughs) So Uh, Of course, the big part, a huge part of the promotion and the marketing was that I was a trans person, which at the time, you know, it was sort of like a double-edged sword. I knew what was happening. I knew that my identity was being exploited for, you know, headlines and magazine covers and all that. But at the same time, I figured, well, if my identity can be some kind of voice and visibility for a community that has no voice and visibility, sure, why not? Um, but you know, like as everything goes, we have this label who's trying to like get us into the mainstream and 
first there's like this like sort of like oh this is new this is weird this is like something that we can write about and get you know people to pay attention to but then it was like oh you actually want to be part of the main music like the mainstream music industry mm, we don't think so you're just kind of like this this little person who came along you created a little bit of history and now we're just going to tuck you away again and but you can't be you can't play with the big boys so what ended up happening was our labels really tried to get us into mainstream radio and music play. We're talking like 2007 where like YouTube and the internet still wasn't at the position that it is right now when it comes to how it influences artists. But we would get the same response over and over, which was like, well, they're great, but we don't really have that kind of programming. And we'd be like, what do you mean that kind of programming? We were rock band, Sorry, right? you, mean, you mean rock and roll, punk, yeah, indie? Exactly. <laughs> I was like, what? And so because I was trans and because my band like were mainly like queer folk, they were like, they just saw us as an LGBTQ artist. They didn't see us as artists. And so we had this like clash where it'd be like, we were doing mainstream sounding, very pop rock, punk. Like a lot of people said it was punk, which I still don't quite understand because that was not in my roots. But I guess... I do now because just my identity in itself was sort of like rooted in that punk attitude of like, I'll do what I want. I'll be who I want. And I don't care what society says, but the, yeah, the program managers just could not get it out of their heads that we were just artists. But now that we were LGBTQ artists and because they didn't have LGBTQ focused shows, we weren't allowed to be part of that. So it really worked for us in one capacity because we had this niche queer audience and we got to be part of a lot of like music festivals, like pride festivals and got hired that way. Uh, but, you know, everything else was a battle. It was a massive battle to get into. So uh, one last semi-personal question and then we're going to fully move on to music. Oh, yeah. um, when you came out in your, yeah, thank you. When, when you came out in your 30s, how did that feel? I mean, it was so liberating um, to finally be able to, you know, speak to the internal private secret voice that I had been holding within me for so long and also carrying with so much shame. And I think that what ended up happening when I came out was when I ended up getting support from community at the time. Um, and acceptance from my family, whatever, and then getting signed, I was like, oh, okay. So like everything good that's happening to me is because I actually spoke to my truth. And, um, that was a beautiful thing. It was like, I got, I got rewarded for telling my truth for finally being present in myself and being grounded. You know, it doesn't mean it, it came without, um, you know, struggle because it definitely did because of this sort of like double-edged sword, as I was explaining. Um, not only did it come from the mainstream music industry, but then I wasn't the right kind of trans person to, to be in the LGBT community because I wasn't on testosterone because it, I, you know, I was told I was going to lose my voice. So it was a lot of like upheaval, but at the end of the day, coming out really, you know, truly in every sense of the word saved my life. Incredible. Yeah. So. Tell us about releasing your debut album, perhaps, at just age 18. Wow. <laughs> That's a throwback. Um, you know, I always had this, like, knowledge and desire since I was a teeny little kid, like, four or five years old, sitting in front of my record player, like, listening to the Beatles. Like, that's the kind of kid I was. I just mm -hmm. always wanted to put out something of my music. So when I was 11, I wrote my first song. And I think at the age of 11, I automatically started preparing myself to collect songs to make, to like record an album. And at the time it was so expensive. There was no logic. There was no pro tools. There were no computers. You had to like pay thousands of thousands of dollars to go and do analog recordings in studios. And at the time, it was so difficult to have access to those studios because of the financial burden. And I remember I was living at home with my parents. So I just got like, I just started working. I would work every penny that I, that I saved, I would put it in the bank. And I was like, this is like, 
what other people do for their university fund, I am doing for my first album. That's like what I'm doing. And that's what I did. And I, it cost me, it's hard, so hard to believe. So it would have been like, what, 1996 or something like that. 97, I can't even remember. Um, I threw down $23,000 to record an album. And uh, yeah, it went all to tape. It was like big reels and all that stuff. And uh, I played most of the instruments on it. I played drums and bass and guitar. I sang. And then I had a couple of people come in to do like uh, keys and um, like a lot of like uh, string tracks. But yeah, when I put that album out, I was so green. I knew nothing about the music industry. All I knew was I'm going to put out a record that this is my brain at the time. I'm going to put out a record and because it's good, it's going to succeed. I knew nothing about anything else. The first album cover that I had for it was horrible. It was just like the worst album cover. But all the mistakes that I made along the way, I started to discover, oh, you have to really be like aware of how you market yourself, of image, of it's not just about the music. It's about an entire package and how you do it. So then I moved, when I moved to Toronto, I re-released the album again. I had another photo shoot. I had a new cover. I got a professional designer to do it. And that's when things sort of started happening um, on the local Toronto scene. I got like a band. My band was like a band of lesbians, I always say, uh, was under my name, but they all loved the music. And so I just started building that way. And it started working. I started building up a, a little audience in Toronto. And that's sort of like how everything started going from that one twenty three thousand $23,000 investment that I put in myself. Incredible. <laughs> so when did you know, was it like a natural evolution or when did you know it was time to start working on your second album, Radio Friendly? That was just, you know, again, it was a matter of moving to Toronto, getting myself knowledgeable and aware of what was going on in the music scene. I became very intertwined with the Toronto music scene as far as it goes with like the, um, the LGBTQ sort of like scene. And I think through that, I then started just being part of the music scene in general. Um, yeah. And I started to learn a lot from the people who were down here. Um, and the biggest thing that I learned was, oh, the government like gives grants to artists. Um, you just have to apply. And, and I was like, what? What are you talking about? Because in my head, I'm like, where the hell am I going to come up with twenty-three dollars or $25,000 to record another album? And that's when, like, the drummer I had at the time was like, just try to write grants. Like, they'll give you money. And she was like, especially because we're LGBTQ, they really want to support that. So don't forget to mention it and that kind of thing. And next thing I knew, I had uh, I had support. And so I was like, okay, let's put out another record. I used a producer that I had, a friend of mine from Mississauga at the time who loved the music, who I'd been in, like, a very little band with and started towards this other album. And the more, the further I went into sort of like the recording process, the more sort of like the rock element of my music started coming out and the gender play started coming out. So the second album was called Radio Friendly. And I went like, even though I was like this butch dyke, the person who did the album cover was like, I think it would be really funny if you did this like super sexy femme kind of album cover because the, the song radio friendly was sort of about like kind of like selling out to image which is it was so like ridiculously like early 2000s like minded um and like silly in that whole like you sell out kind of way i mean i remember this even a lyric in there about being britney spears or something who i by the way love her music but at the time i was just like a young punk who thought she knew everything at the time because that's who i was but uh yeah and then from that more audience members came and I started playing more around Toronto. And then I was like, you know what? This is starting to feel all wrong. Everybody keeps talking about me like a lesbian, female singer songwriter. And I started feeling like somebody was like, had me in a chokehold of identity. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. And even though I was in a band, they were very like pop, like a oh, sort of folk, folk poppy sort of like, nuanced and i wanted to like start a rock band like that's what i really wanted and i think it was like this natural progression within me and my own association with my personal masculinity 
um, that made me sort of start going that way. And also if I had a band and if we were all like really cool and very queer, but people didn't have to start talking about my gender identity anymore or sorry, my sexual identity and who I was as a, like, if I was a woman. So I always tell people like my first name as a trans person was actually the clicks. That was my first, my first name <laughs> because I just didn't want to be seen as this like singer, so solo, like songwriter, lesbian sort of thing. So that was the progression into, into that. It's amazing how like your music career shows like your growth as a human being as well. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how did your band, the clicks initially come together? I lived in this building that was like full of queers and I'd met this actually as a trans woman who lived uh, above me and she was like the sweetest, nicest human being on the planet. Found out that she could play bass, very like punk kind of like bass, like just super basic, like root notes. And I was just like, you know what? Why don't we start a band, Esri? And she was like, sure. She was like this total like Star Trek nerd, sweetheart, um, you know, super like beautiful And I was just like, this would be so awesome if we just started a band, like with like a bunch of, in my head, I'm thinking like, it'd be like a trans band because I wasn't ready to come out yet, but I knew something was going on. And we put an ad in like some weird, like sort of like Craigslist type music um, online presence for our drummer. And that's where I met uh, the drummer at the time was Heidi, another lesbian, uh, super cute, like butchy. And we were all very like simple players, but the music I had, I had sort of built everything. And so I was just like to them, I was like, you guys are beginners. I've been doing this for a while. Here's what I want you guys to play. They were super into it. Everything was constructed from like my imagination. And we would literally go into Esri's like middle room of her like three bedroom apartment, which at the time we could afford no longer a possibility for one person to afford a three bedroom, but we would rehearse there. And uh, it started off as just a really fun little, like three people getting together and just having fun with rock songs. And then I got a grant again and I was like, let's go record an album, man. And we did. And uh, that album, I, because of Esri, she taught me a lot about Photoshop. I learned a lot about design, which went straight into the image. And I had this like logo of like a shadow, like a silhouette of me with a white tie. And me and Esri would go around Toronto. We printed these big giant posters, just that logo. I wanted the lettering to look very similar to Calvin Klein, which was like a big thing at the time, which is so silly, but it worked because all around Toronto, all you'd see was this image and this logo. And next thing I know, we released the album and we sold out the venue. And I was like, what just happened? And I realized the power of putting effort into image, into promotion, even locally. And at the time, that's all we had. So I had a dog walking business at the time. And I was like, I am going to cut my clientele in half. And I'm going straight full into this. I think this album has a lot of potential. I started self-managing. I booked us all of our gigs. I got us into like college radio. We eventually made it to the top 10 all from my like little work on my computer in the middle of the day, like talking to radio program managers and all that. And we got a lot of support from the the top, uh, the, it was called chart attack at the time it was the college university radio charts. And, uh, yeah, the album got to a top 10 and we just started playing everywhere. And next thing I know there are managers and people showing up at our gigs and they're like, Oh, you guys are great, but you need more growth. And that's when everything sort of like started trickling down for me gender wise, especially because I was in a band with Esri. I was always around this trans person who was a consistent reminder to me of like my own gender identity. And finally, I just kind of like my lid blew. Um, and uh, I had had a really bad breakup. And that's where the second album, the Clicks album came from, Snake House. And everything that I wrote on that album, I wrote in a little bedroom, super depressed, super sad and heartbroken. And next thing I know, we're back in the studio, another grant. God bless the Canadian government with their granting process, because I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for that. And uh, we record it. The manager who had said no, heard it, finally comes back and is like, I want to sign you guys, and I'm going to get you guys a record deal. And next thing I know, it's like two months later, we have two label deals, and the next month we're like supposed to be on the road with Cindy Lauper. And I was like, what the hell is happening? And that's just the way things happen. They're slow, 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 slow. And then boom, you're like off on a roll. Wow. 
Yeah. Incredible. So as, as we've mentioned, you're the first openly trans man signed to a major label and had a ton of, and have had a ton of success with appearances on Kimmel, The Late Late Show, MTV, major global tours, landed sync placements and more. But you've also said, and, and we touched on this a little bit, the band hit a glass ceiling where the main focus wasn't on your music. It was very much on your gender identity. So mm-hmm. how have you balanced your status as an iconic pioneer and role model, along with being seen first and foremost as the incredible artist that you are? Oh, that's very sweet of you. Well, it took years. I have to be honest. There was a, a very, very huge part of my life that after we started touring and it wasn't just me, it was like the band too. Like there was a lot of resistance about my identity because they didn't want to be seen as just queer artists, something that I resented at the time, but I can fully understand. Um, It was very invisibilizing to us as artists. So when everything becomes about your gender or your sexuality, it's almost like people just like, they don't see you. They just see like, which is so weird. They just see like, your presentation and and who you're sleeping with. And I'm like, and then all of a sudden, everything that I wrote got it. Like, it was like somebody put like a trans queer lens over it and was like, that's what this song means. And I'm like, no, it's not like, stop that. Like that has nothing to do with anything. There's a song on the first clicks album that's called different girl. And somebody years later was like, well, this was obviously about his gender identity. And I'm like, no, it's not. It was about a girl that I was in love with from the suburbs. That's what it was about. It's got nothing to do with anything to do except being in love with somebody. And uh, so that became like this really huge, like sort of like piece on top of me where I just started resenting everything. I got very angry. I was very depressed. My band was pissing me off. I was pissing them off everybody was pissing us off and we got, we just all got really sad being on the road all the time. It was so unhealthy. You know, the attention was all on me and my gender identity. I can understand now. I didn't understand it at the time, but I can understand now how they felt invisibilized. And, you know, then this idea of like how you share your music and what people want from you as a songwriter it just became all this convoluted nonsense. I was watching the Go-Go's documentary and I was like, oh, look, it's the story of the clicks. It's the same bullshit. Every band wants the, all the songwriting rights and they want all the publishing. And at the end of the day, there's literally no money to even share that. So why are we fighting over nothing here? But that's what happened. And that's what happens when you're young and you have egos that aren't in place. Eventually, I realized after trying to release a clicks album after the the last label album, which was Dirty Dirty King, um, that basically like the band quit two weeks after it came out, which was devastating, not just to us, but like financially devastating because the label had spent so much money on us. And I felt that I should at least try to like get out there. And that's actually when I hired, uh, um, oh my God, how am I forgetting his name? Uh, Brian. Uh, drummer of the Dresden Dolls. Yeah, he played with me. He was such a fantastic drummer, like outrageously good. And Toby Parks, uh, who was also like a, a Brooklyn uh, bass, bass player, tried to like sort of get it out there. And at this point, I was like tired of not being on testosterone, started doing tea. And then it was like, there's no point. The label is like done supporting us. They just spent tons of money. The other band members left. And it's almost like they were just like bidding their time being like, if this succeeds, we'll put some more money into it. If it doesn't, we're letting it go. And that's what happened. I got really lucky. And I always tell this to people. I got dropped by a label that could have kept me going for $20,000 a year. If they had renewed my contract over and over, they didn't didn't have to give me tour support. They would have just kept me prisoner, but they didn't. So I got really lucky. I got dropped. I had a ridiculous unrecouped balance, which only like a year ago, I started seeing royalties back from because of course they took all of our publishing because that's what labels did at the time. So I lost completely two of my albums, but the freedom that I got was I got to go out and explore other parts of myself. So the sec- the very last, you know, clicks album was released and it was like a complete different like angle feel i was doing like motown soul blues but my manager at the time was adamant that it'd be a clicks thing because i had branded myself that way and people were only gonna know and i was like this is not a clicks album this is like i should just do something else 
but there was like this idea and I didn't follow my gut. And because I didn't follow my gut again, the album fell flat, but nobody, people were like, this is not the clicks. This is a different band. It's you. And I was like, yeah, I know. I told my manager that, but here we are. And then I lost my queer audience because a lot of the audience that I had were lesbians and they were, they were female and they were just kind of like, you've abandoned us because you've transitioned. And there was all this like anger in me and resentment. And I felt really invisible as a human being. So I spent a lot of years being angry and resentful and being like, it's their fault. Instead of being like, I have music, I'm an artist, I have worth, but you learn as you go. And um, finally, I was just kind of like, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing. I don't have to be part of this mainstream music stuff. I'm just going to keep doing my thing the way that I want to. And uh, ever since, I've just sort of been like, I call myself a working class artist where I hustle. I have different streams of revenue that I go towards because of my privilege of being aware that I do have those streams of revenues. I, I write. I am a public speaker because you said I've been involved in the trans, you know, transgender community as a pioneer, which always makes me so uncomfortable when I hear that. But I know that it's true and I have to give myself that value. But because of that, I also have the ability to go out, talk to people about my experience, talk about trans rights, trans visibility, and also educate uh, young artists who are trans about how to sort of, you know, navigate their, their career. And still, get grants, do my music. And like, you know, it took me a long time to do another album because I spent so much time in this place of anger. I also had mental health issues and, you know, a pandemic. You put all of that, bad relationships, lack of self-awareness, self-loathing, depression, you take it all and, and everything implodes. And then one day you wake up to yourself and you realize, wow, I did all that. And now I'm going to do everything very, very differently because that was so unhealthy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's incredibly <laughs> for sure. And thank you for the work you're doing. And, and of course, for your, for your music and, and your art. Of course. Thank you. Yeah. So as, as you mentioned, you're a multidisciplinary artist that has accomplished a lot. So this is really the, the title of this episode. How do you know when a project, it, it really could be any kind of project, you know, mm-hmm. writing, music, how do you know when a project is winding down and it's time to start the creative process again? Um, I think it's like, honestly, like nowadays, because of the way that the flow happens within social media, within mainstream sort of like like YouTube and all of that stuff, when you start to see your numbers winding down, when you start to feel your energy no longer wanting to be focused on something, as an artist, I have the ability to do that, to just be like, you know what? I think that this has gone its cycle. I think that as I've done as much as I can do, um, and it's time to sort of like put that away. I don't think that that works necessarily that way when you are getting sort of like tour support and financial support, because I think the life cycle of an album can last a lot longer because you have access to other audiences that you might not have access to, like going to different countries. For me, because I am an independent artist, because I do have other streams of revenue, I do this thing where I sort of like, I jump from one to the other, to the other, whatever I'm getting the most energy from and the most uh, support financially from, that's where I end up going. Because at the end of the day, I do need to survive as an artist. And Mm -hmm. I do believe that energetically, when you breathe life into an artistic project, it breathes life right back into you. So what I end up doing is I end up using all of the different sort of like you know, uh, disciplines that I, that I work with. And I, I sort of like put a dash of each one, you know, into the other. So if I'm going to go and write a piece, uh, like I do a lot of my writing on Facebook, I basically use Facebook as a blog, um, for like spiritual growth, but then I'll talk about my mental health in there, or I'll talk about my music in there. So it all comes sort of like in one into the other. 
if I'm writing from the memoir aspect, which has been a very difficult process for me to to, to undertake and is still like in, in the works because you have to go into all your history and it's it's hard. It's like re-triggering, but part of the, that, that writing also includes my music. So if I am to release an, uh, like a book, people are automatically going to find out what my history is, what my music is, and hopefully that, that'll like breathe new life, recycling the old art. Um, I There's this kid's book that I've been wanting to write forever, but I've written a song for it. And it's like a kid's song. So that, again, brings in the music part into my writing. So it's almost like you just got to like sort of intertwine everything. If you can do that, cool. If you can't, the cycle pretty much has its own life, which is you have an album, you write it, you record it, you release it, you tour it. Are people st- still coming to the shows or are you like begging people to come? If you're begging, I always tell people as independent artists, don't waste your money. Like do your research, find out what your ticket sales are. If your ticket sales are really bad, cancel the show, yo. Don't travel like miles and miles, waste gas money, hotels, like your 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 human energy to go and play to five people like if you're passing through and it's better to like play that show cool i get that but don't like go out of your way to try to get out there and uh, the other thing is like i always tell the younger artists don't take yourself so seriously like don't have fun with it you know don't think that five people showing up at your show means that you failed it doesn't because sometimes you can play, you can do a tour where like one show you play, literally you'll play to the opening band and then you hit up a bigger, like, you know, market like New York city and the place is jam packed full of people. So it's almost just like understanding how that cycle works. But then when you get to New York, if there's nobody there, that's when it's time to sort of like call it a day, go back home, go be a human being again. I had a conversation with Tegan uh, Quinn from Tegan and Sarah once uh, because I kept getting pressured when I was on the road. Why aren't you writing? Why aren't you writing? I'm like, dude, like my manager, I was like, I'm I'm in the back of a van. What am I supposed to do? Like take out my acoustic guitar while I'm like getting road sick and have like six people sitting with me to like go into the most private places of myself or on a bus like it's not going to happen. And they were always like, well, other people do it. Other people do it. So I was just like, I need some kind of validation. So I went and spoke to Tegan from uh, Tegan and Sarah. And she, we were at a, like uh, on the, uh, sorry, the Cindy Lauper True Colors tour. And we were like on the base, like on the bus deck, like looking at all the buses behind the venue. And she goes, and I said to her, do you ride when you're on the road? And she goes, oh my God, no. She goes, look around you. This isn't real life. This isn't real life for anybody. You have to like do this thing, go do the tour and then go back home, go be a person, gather experiences, go be human. That's what people are going to relate to you. They're not going to be relating to you as an artist in a bus. Like, and I was like, exactly. And that's exactly how I felt. And so when the album Dirty King came out, the song Dirty King, which was the last sort of like album that I put out after like sort of that energy on those tours was that song was about that. It was about like this duality that I had to feel with my road life and with my personal life that I was pretending to be like this good boyfriend when I got home and that I was like stable, but all I wanted to do when I was on the road was go home. And all I wanted to do when I got home was go back on the road. And when I was on the road, I saw myself as like this weird little creature, this little monster Um, Because, you know, there's so much alcohol and drugs and not sleeping and bad food and partying and, and yes, doing like shit that you don't normally do as a person. And I realized that's not the life I want. So there comes a lot of growth too when it happens with, uh, with how you cycle. Is this what you want to do? Do you want to be a touring artist? Do you want to be a studio artist? Do you want to be the kind of artist that releases an album and goes and plays one big gig or two big gigs a year. Is that enough for you? Um, so it's really like depending on what you want, but I, I always say when the energy and the fun starts coming out of it, that's when, you know, you got to go elsewhere. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So much in there. (laughs) Um, 
I was just going to say, I think that's such a good reminder that all industry people, uh, aspiring industry people, especially if you want to be a manager, should tour at some point, even if it's one tour, go do merch or whatever, because I think that Mm -hmm. empathy component is really super important. You don't want it because I used to tour manage and that's where we originally met on the True Mm -hmm. Colors tour. I was very young when I started tour managing. Um, And actually, it feels weird to like, compare to an artist but just like as an artist like when you made your first album and you learned and you know um it's you know the recording process and and things started to get a little easier what I'm trying to say is when I started out it's like you know there's people in New York asking me for spreadsheets I'm like I've got like Nine Inch Nails production manager yelling at me we're like you know there's like (laughs) yeah just or it's just like and and even empathy of schedules right I mean I think most people understand this, but it's like, no, like it doesn't make sense for us to do 6am radio when, you know, the band was DJing an after party till 2am or whatever. So I just think those empathy components are really, really important. I appreciate you saying that because I think that that's one thing that's really lacking in the, in the mainstream music industry is that empathy for artists. I think a lot of artists get seen as though they're machines and they're not. Um, And I would say to any label, to any manager out there who wants to have a healthy, successful, long-term career artist, you have to look at them the way you do with like labor laws. They're there for a reason, right? You know, it's, I think one of the reasons why the clicks ended up not being the success, the success that they could have been is because we were just so exhausted. You know, it's like 14 hour drives. You get there. They have no good food for you. We get paid nothing. We have no money. We're eating burgers every day and drinking after the shows and like, and not sleeping. What do you expect? Like, of course, people are going to have emotional breakdowns and nobody's going to want to be a part of that. So the success comes in health. It's like, you have to be healthy in order to do that. Yeah. 100%. You know, if you do cancel a faraway show because of ticket sales, um, and again, I've worked really closely with artists, so I know it's not always the easiest just to like get in front of a screen and do stuff, but you could also do a webcast. You know, there's still- 100%. I mean, there wasn't necessarily in 2008 or whatever, but um, yeah, cancel the gig for your own mental health and sanity, but then connect with the folks who did buy buy those tickets. And I bet you could ask, the venue for their email addresses because um, likely the tickets were bought digitally. And then you can be like, Hey, I'm doing a webcast. Come hang out. Beautiful. That's like such a smart, smart thing to do. And that's what I have done is a lot of the time. And I do this every single Christmas. I do this thing where Christmas Eve, I play like two to three hours. I just go on live and I get so many people passing through. I have some people be like, this is the highlight of our Christmas. Like, we love this. I get people sending me pictures of like them and their family sitting in the room with gifts and like having me blown up on the wall, just being in their background as like, and sometimes they interact and they ask for songs and I do silly things and covers. People love that stuff because I think now the access to you is one of the most important things that I think people have always wanted. They want that access to you as a person. So I know a lot of these stars are like bigger than life, but I love it when they do these things and they come on Instagram live and they, they say, Hey, to so-and-so and hi to this person. It just humanizes you. And I think that that in itself is like a really good thing to do to, to just like get yourself out there. You'd be amazed how much people want to give to you as soon as you make them feel seen. Yes. Thank you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked about, you know, how do you know when a project is winding down, but many artists are understandably often excited to share their latest work while the audience is still digging one's previous project. So mm-hmm. how do you know when to be patient and let a, let a project breathe for a minute, even if you're su- understandably super excited to share what you've just created? Yeah, that's like a really, I mean, that's like one of those things. It's like a little balancing act, right? Um, I think in many, many ways, there is this pressure that also comes with, are you putting this out 
because you're excited about it? Or are you putting this out because you want to make sure that people remember you and that you stay relevant? And that is like, a again, it's like there are two things to think about because of the way that music right now, it's like it's great in one way. So many people can reach audiences. But in the other way is the music industry and the music scene and music period on the internet, it's so saturated. There are so many people out there. And instead of like necessarily putting out a whole album, you can just put out a single and you can just give somebody like a little sprinkle because that is what this system, this new system allows you to do. This new way of releasing music allows you to do. You can stay relevant and present even if you just go on YouTube with your acoustic guitar and put out a video of like, hey, I just wrote this song. I hope you guys like it. I might put this on an album later. You know what I mean? So instead of making it like, I have to go into the studio, I have to release it. I'm mainly talking about like indie stuff, right? Um, I think that that's like a really, really good approach while you are really, truly taking your time. The last album that I did was the first album that, and it was forcibly at first, was due to the pandemic. I was supposed to record it two weeks before the, or when the pandemic, like when everybody went into quarantine, I had like studio time and my my uh, producer two weeks later we were supposed to start recording and we started recording a year and a half almost two years later and in that time we also took little breaks when we were out of quarantine to go into the studio to put down stuff and the most beautiful thing about that was taking your time with projects if you can is beautiful because you have no idea what one song you thought was going to sound like this ends up sounding like that because you had this moment where you recorded, you sat down, you listened to it and you're like, I don't know if I like this or I hear this. And I think that there's something to be said to take your time with your projects. Don't just like want to put out stuff over and over and over just for the sake of doing it. It sort of takes away from your artistry and from the potential that you have to make that work as amazing as possible. Also, then there's the other side. There is no thing that's going to be perfection. So don't not release something because it's never as good as you want it to be, right? Sometimes you just got to let the baby go, right? You just got to let it go yes. into the world and live its own life. So yeah, it's it's that's a very like good question because there is a balancing act that happens there. Wow, such a good point. Thank you. Um, had one other... Oh, I was just going to say, um, yeah, and I think it's so brilliant how you talked about teasing out a new song, even if it's just popping on a live stream, doing something acoustic, because that's so great for the hardcore fans who, yeah. and when it does actually come out, you know, in a, in a full studio record, it's like extra special to them. Exactly. That's exactly like one of the songs that I had on my, the last album, I had really, I'd put it on the internet. I think it was in 2018. And this would have been 2022. It finally gets released. And I had so many emails of people going, I'm so glad you put that on the album because I've been listening to that acoustic version for like the last three, four years. And I, I love that song. And I'm like, cool. That's great. Like, I love that you followed the journey the whole way here. Exactly. So yeah. we have an audience question. Mm -hmm. Grab that. If you have the opportunity to be a symbol for change, do you lean into that? Or by leaning into that, does that take away from your unique voice? Oh, I, I say lean into it. Um, 20 years ago, I would have been like, I want nothing to do with it. But that's because I was younger. I did not understand how important it is to be a symbol of change, even if it makes you feel very uncomfortable, which at times it really does. But then, you know, uh, you go on Instagram like I did today and you find out that here in Canada, there are uh, people in government trying to make sure that no education on LGBTQ issues goes into schools, that parents only be allowed to educate their kids and that it not be part of the curriculum whatsoever. And also this, there's this website, it's called keep, keep your hands off our kids.ca or hands off our kids. And they're going to have this massive rally here to essentially like say that they're, they're calling us like thought, um, the thought police that were like indoctrinating kids. And I'm like, Oh, so cool. Um, I'm glad that you guys are like putting the guns into the hands of these children who later will not feel accepted by you 
do you realize that one of the highest rates of suicide comes from the trans community? And one of the reasons why these kids end up doing this is because they feel like there's so much violence and hate around them that they can't be themselves. These people have no understanding. So to be a symbol of change in a situation like that, to know, I know that I have saved lives. And I've only done that very basically by being who I am authentically. And also being that representation that folks can see me as being somebody normalized within the world that they can look at and go, I can also have a successful life. And to have a successful life as a trans or queer person is very basic. I have basic shelter, food, I have friends, and I have family who love me, and I can survive on whatever the low income that I have. I am not a rich, wealthy person. I have a great, amazing life. I have a beautiful family. I have been able to practice as an artist, as I say, on a working class level. I do stuff outside my music to support me in that way. But the fact that I am alive, I just turned 50. That for a trans person is you're, you actually went above and beyond your life expectancy because you either die by violence or you die by your own hand or you know something systemic that happens to you that takes your life away from you. So yes, lean into change because if you don't, somebody else is going to take that opportunity to make space for anti-you, for fascist thought, for Nazi thought, white supremacist, anti-trans, you know, trans, transphobic, homophobic, sexist, all the shit. These people will take any opportunity they possibly can to take the space that you are not willing to take. And like I said, years ago, I would never have given myself any like respect or like props for what I've done. But when you have every single day, somebody emailing you, telling you I'm alive because I found you or the difference that you made in my life to understand my, my trans child, like that's huge for me. And it gives me so much like purpose and makes me feel like just by being one little voice in the world that I'm creating change and I'm giving somebody hope. So yeah, lean into it, man. As long as it's for the good, not for bad stuff. (laughs) Exactly. And also what you described, you know, shelter, friends, family, it's like, oh, human rights that everyone deserves. Yeah. And, um, you know, I hear you. Obviously it's just as, um, bad in the u.s right now and i I just don't understand it's like you know um how about listening you know supporting like and and you know doing that with your own family and friends and situation not you know like yeah i don't know about your own stuff yeah i know that's it and it's fear you know i and i always tell people like i used to hate like all these people that were so like cruel to trans people and I no longer carry hate inside of me. What I do carry is like a sense of like empathy and sympathy for these people, because I cannot imagine what a horrible life it must be to live with that much hate in your heart. And I just wish them like, I wish them love because if they had that love, it would no longer come out in that capacity where they'd feel that the need to control something that's different to them just so that they can feel relevant, you know, and I feel for them. So I hope that they find love because uh, that would create a lot of change in the world. Oh, just amazing. Um, you've studied some Buddhism, right? Did we touch on I that? Certainly. <laughs> yeah, it's very new in my life. It's been sort of on the periphery of my life, but I, I, I will say that Buddhist practice has probably been the, the one thing that's probably saved my life and has constructed me to become like the person that I've always wanted to be. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't ever want to say I hate something ever again. It's so toxic. Yeah. 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 Is it, is it that far fetched to love all be- beings and live in the present moment? Yeah, that's it. You know, I always tell people, I don't care if you're transphobic. I really don't. What I do care about is if you want to turn your belief into a law and you want to systemize, you want to make it systemic that your personal hatred of who I am or, or disagreeing with who I am is automatically going to take away my human rights. Go have your beliefs in private. 
Hopefully you won't indoctrinate your children. Hopefully you won't like be doing harm to other people with them. But as soon as you come for my human rights, that's where it ends. Like that's where I, I cannot, I cannot, you know, I will, there will be resistance, you know, that's all in loving ways. <laughs> yeah, And also hopefully you don't alienate your own children. Cause that happens right? all the time. Oh my God, of course. And then you lose on having these beautiful beings in your life. You know, you know, that's what I say. Like anybody who is either transphobic, homophobic, or even ableist as somebody who, who, who has a mental illness, you are missing out on such a beautiful connection with me because I have turned out to be such an awesome human being. I'm very proud of where I am. And I would never say that before because it would feel very egotistical, but I think I owe myself the respect to know that all the growth I've, uh, growth I've had has been towards the better. And that automatically goes into my artistry and I just keep growing and growing and growing. And every time I perform live, somebody's like, wow, man. And I'm like, right just keep getting better with age. And that's because I finally have accepted this is my place. This is where I go. This is my lane. And I feel really comfortable here and I can honor that. And also like give space to the people around to like do their own thing and not have to be a part of every single thing in the world. Exactly. Yeah. And before we wrap up, I just want to echo on the power of representation um, and how important it is and how you are saving lives. Um, you know, it, at our nonprofit, I voted, um, our C-suite is all women um, and our overall team and, and majority BIPOC. Our overall team is 92% women, non-binary, LGBTQ plus um, or BIPOC. And, you know, other executives say to me, oh, how did you build such a diverse team? And we put a little thought into it. I had a great COO in 2020 who pointed out like, you know, Hey, we don't have a lot of black men on the team. I'm on the board of the Well Done Foundation that provides, um, well, this is probably not revolutionary in Canada, but paid entertainment industry internships and mentoring to underserved students. But other than that, what I'm trying to say, like our extremely diverse numbers is because they see themselves reflected in leadership. And so that's who shows up. So when other exactly. executives are like, oh, trying, you know, to hire people of color, LGBTQ plus people, like you know, they're not applying. It's like, cause you're all cis white dudes. Like they don't, you know, it's like, of course you don't feel like you can move up in the company or like feel super comfortable. So what it's not just hiring, you know, not just cis, you know, white dudes. Um, it's promoting, right? Exactly. Yep. It's inclusion. If they feel alienated from you and what you represent, they're not going to want to be a part of it. Right. No. And also it can't be performative. It has to be like true, yes. like allyship. It has to be true inclusion. It's not just like, Oh, I'm here. I'm like, I'm a, one of the good ones. It's just like, yeah, stop giving yourself cookies. Just like do the right thing. Right. And of course now you have like the idiocy of people being like, well, shouldn't you hire people for their skill? And I'm like, yeah, that's what we've been saying for years. And for years, yeah. black folks and queer folks have had those skills and you haven't hired them. So now we're going to put them to the front of the line because you didn't. So shut up and sit down. <laughs> you know, like, why is that so hard to understand? It's amazing. Like when white men stop feeling, they like I always say, like the reason why there is so much violence right now happening and so much like fascist and Nazi uprising and white supremacy, because white men are finally starting to feel what it is like to have themselves put in a place where we're going, no, we don't need you right now. And they're feeling threatened. And I'm like, imagine if every single person on this planet who was a person of color, a person who was queer, trans, female, had taken the exact same position that you are now taking for your white male rights and done like reacted with this violence, what would happen? Oh, wait, look at what happened to the Black Panthers. They got deemed a terrorist, like, you know, cell when all they were doing was fighting for black equality, but because they were a little bit militant as in, we're not going to let you take us down. All of a sudden we have people still to this day who live in different countries who are deemed terrorists who are just like, you know, human rights activists. And so now white guys are doing it and uh, it's just seen as like regular old, like, we want equality crap. Anyway, I could go on about this forever. I'm going to be quiet. <laughs> I hear you. 
So where can folks find you to stay in the loop on um, all of your incredible work? Social media is like my main thing, even though I don't go there as much as I used to. I have a very different relationship with social media. Um, but at Lucas Silvera is my Instagram. Uh, you can go to my website, uh, theclicks.com, which is C-L-I-K-S. I've turned the band name into a production company. So it's the Clicks Productions um, Incorporated. And I basically use it as, uh, you know, a place where I can do all of my disciplines. Like, and it basically, you can keep up with me as an artist, as a writer, as a performer and as a public speaking entity and an LGBTQ mental health entity. So I do a lot of that stuff. I love it. Anything else you'd like to add? No, just thank you for creating awareness and trying to help young artists. I think it's fantastic. I think so many of them are misled these days and feel so hopeless in the vast, you know, uh, land of all these artists. And just remember one thing I had somebody in the, in the entertainment industry say this to me, who actually works for a, a show here, um, in Canada called Q. And I always go to people like I have this old mindset. I would go to somebody's Instagram and I'd be like, Oh, wow. This artist is so amazing. Like I went to Benjamin Clementine. I don't know if you know who he is. He's an incredible singer songwriter from the UK. A lot of people don't know who he is. He's incredible. He's very popular in the, in Europe. He is, he was in the movie Dune. He's this incredible dude, but I went on his Instagram and I was like, wow, he only has like 80,000 followers. That like really surprises me. I thought he'd be way more successful. And this person says to me, I don't think you understand the way things work nowadays. That is not a representation of success anymore. What is, is there are so many lanes now because of the internet. There are so many different places you can go that somebody else will have no idea who you are but then you have that lane follow that lane find your audience keep in touch with them and just keep moving forward don't expect to be the next taylor swift or kanye west or lady gaga that those are like that's like winning the lottery it doesn't really happen all the time be super happy that you can have at least like a working career and follow the path to joy and just stay in that lane and you'll do really, really well. That's oh, it. that's so, yeah, that's so beautiful. And I just want to add, it's like, um, it's about your audience and it's about your art and no one will believe me, but there are people that don't know who Taylor Swift is, don't know who mm-hmm. Beyonce is. You can go look at the concert listings for your local arena or really any venue. And I guarantee you there's tons of people you haven't heard of, but obviously to their audience, like yes, or something. So Exactly. Yeah. There's so many artists. The other day I heard about this uh, country artist who apparently is huge in the States. I, of course, can't remember his name, but apparently he had some run-in with the police or something. Yep. I don't remember his name, but I was just like, I've never heard of this guy. Apparently he's selling out arenas. No idea who he is. <laughs> but he's successful. And that's exactly what you're saying. And that exists as well. in sort of like the more indie mainstream, like, you know, under like, uh, alternative, whatever scene it's, it's all there. Just focus on you and your art and what you do and give to the audience that is receiving to it. It's all there. Beautiful. Well, Lucas, thank you so much for your time today. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate talking about this. It's, uh, it's fun. Yeah. That's a a wrap for this episode of how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams. Join us next week for our season finale. When do I need an attorney manager or business manager defining an artist's traditional team where I'll talk with Duckworth's manager, Extina Prince. In the meantime, thanks so much to Lucas, Downtown Music, podcast manager Mike Zimmerlich, engineer Nathan Kane, Matthew Wong for composing the show's music, the Ally Coalition, Liquid Death, Hal Leonard, and of course, the Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment's New York Music Month for making this all happen. 